0: Hi, and welcome to the Works Cited Podcast, where we seek out research and evidence to help understand stories from the world around us. I'm Diana Brazel, the co-founder and executive editor of Footnote, an online media company that brings academic research and ideas to new audiences. One question we think about a lot at footnote is how to tell good research from the not so good. How do we know if a study we want to cover is accurate? What science can we trust and what conclusion should we draw from it? It turns out scholars have been asking these questions a lot lately themselves. A little over a decade ago, researchers in different fields started trying to reproduce some of the studies their peers had published in top peer reviewed academic journals, which are generally considered the gold standard for academic research. The results were pretty shocking. In some cases, as few as one in 10 published studies produced the same results when other researchers tried to recreate them. These problems have real-world implications. For example, several efforts have been made to reproduce the findings of high-profile papers in cancer biology, and a number of studies were not able to be replicated. This creates a lack of confidence in what science should be trusted and makes it harder for researchers to know which potential new treatments for cancer are most promising and should be further developed. So as you can tell, these issues around reproducibility have serious implications for academic research. Over the past several years, they prompted a lot of discussion about what people have started calling the reproducibility crisis. At Footnote, we wanted to understand more about this so-called crisis and what people are doing to try and fix it. So we connected with Stephanie Weikstra, a writer, academic, and research consultant, who's been working on reproducibility issues for years and who we'll be talking to during today's podcast. We worked with Stephanie to produce a series of articles on reproducibility that were recently published in Inside Higher Ed and on Footnote. I encourage you to check out the articles. You can find us online at footnote.co, but first have a listen to the conversation I recently had with Stephanie about the series and what we learned from it. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Diana. So just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this issue and why you think it's important?
1: Sure. So my interest in this area started about six years ago when I was working for a nonprofit called GiveWell that recommends charities to donors. And GiveWell does really in-depth research on the charities, including looking at um, research on the kinds of things that they're doing to help people. And it was through that work that I learned about uh, what now we could call meta-research. I don't know if that term was being used in 2011 or 12, but really it's the study of research. And uh, what really hit me hard back then was when I learned about the problem of publication bias. And I can still remember the day when I was reading some article about publication bias and uh, really what this bias is, is the tendency for us for Positive results or the exciting results to uh, get shared in journals, and for the null results, the ones that don't really show anything, to stay in the file drawer. And when the, when that problem hit me, I just realized um, this is the kind of thing that compromises the reliability of basically all of research where there's publication bias and. The issue is that it's it's not that we know any particular study is wrong. It's that any of the studies that we see, uh, we have to downgrade our confidence in that study because of a problem like publication bias, um, or it, we have to downgrade our confidence in the results the study is claiming. And so there are other problems as well that I'm sure we'll get into, like selective reporting of results, lack of data sharing. Um, and since then, I really kind of went into this area. For about the last four years, I've worked on various aspects of meta-research, mostly on transparency. Um, But I think for me, the most exciting part of this area is that more and more people are realizing there's a big problem. Um, More and more people are taking it seriously. And I think there's a lot of good work happening.
0: And I think it's interesting to hear kind of your background and how you came into this, because it sounds like you are really coming from a place of real-world people who want to use research to understand what kind of programs works, and then looking at the research and starting to say, can we really trust this research? You know, here is a talking about publication bias, here's a study that says a certain approach works, but there might be 10 people who studied it and found nothing, but they didn't publish a, a paper on it. So I think, to me, that just highlights the reason that you know, this isn't kind of an abstract theoretical question. This has real implications for people who are actually using research to create programs that help people or create medical advances or really any any way that research is being applied. There needs to be confidence or at least some awareness of how reliable that research is.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: But one of the things I know you and I talked about is whether or not this is really a crisis, you know, people have talked about this as the the reproducibility crisis. Um, do you feel like that's an accurate word to use or is this really this kind of halting progress and mistakes? Is this really just part of the scientific process? Uh, what What's really going on here in your mind?
1: Well, I think uh, there has been this debate about whether to use the word crisis to describe what's been happening in the state of research. I think, to me, that's, uh, that's not really the main question. I think we could use the word crisis or not. I think it's pretty clear there's reasons for worry, whether or not this is some kind of emergency situation, <laughs> which crisis would imply. Um, I think that just to start out, I would say, um, and maybe this is for listeners that aren't as familiar, but um, it's not that we're worried that there's widespread deliberate fraud or data fabrication. That's certainly not what's happening. Um, and also a second point, it's not, that we know that a large number of results are false. So I would say this is less about truth and falsity and more about the confidence we can have. One way to describe what's happening is that there's a couple of different factors that combined uh, when combined create a, a dangerous situation. So, um, and reduce our confidence. So on the one hand, um, there's a lot of freedom in how researchers analyze their data in, you know, most fields. So you can call those researcher degrees of freedom. And those can include decisions like which outliers to exclude, uh, which outcomes to report. There might be lots of different ways of subdividing um, uh, participants. Um, so, you know, looking at different subgroups and so on. And so given that there are many, many different decisions that can be made in analyzing data, Um, there's a really high probability that, you know, someone can find positive outcomes to report that some of those ways of slicing the data would turn out to be statistically significant.
0: Just a question to clarify for our listeners. So what you're talking about is someone goes out and collects a bunch of data and they're sitting down in front of that data set and they've got all these different variables and there's just a lot of choices Mm -hmm. about how they can slice and dice it, which analyses to run, which data to include or not include, And so it's those choices, which it sounds like you're saying a lot of times aren't maliciously made. Um, You know, they're not intentionally fraudulent, but there's just a lot of choices. And so depending on which choices people make, they might get a certain result or they might get a very different result.
1: Right. Exactly. Yes. So when you combine that with, uh, first of all, the the pressure to publish and... Uh, it being easier to publish something that finds something, you know, finds a positive result, uh, something exciting like this works, right? Um, It combined sort of degrees of freedom with the pressure to publish as well as um, a lack of transparency. So when I say lack of transparency, that could mean a lot of things. Here, I would take that to mean um, it's not clear, first of all, which of these decisions have been made. So what are all the ways that the researcher looked at the data, and then which did they choose to report and why? That might not come through, often doesn't, in an article. Um, they might you know, not disclose all of the things that they considered or all of the decisions they considered making. Um, and while this is changing, and we'll talk about that, it's also fairly, still fairly rare to share the data underlying the results. So if someone else wants to go and look at your results that you've published and look at the data and try to analyze them themselves and see if they, you know, agree with how you analyze them. That's often not possible because the data are not shared. Uh, they're not made right. public and it might be very difficult to get them upon requests. So, and so a lot of the things that we can talk about as ways forward have to do with uh, trying to increase confidence by taking various measures. And so, um, that could be pre-registering an resu- uh, analysis plan in advance. Um, so that's, that's one thing. So saying in advance how you will analyze the data, kind of saying this is my hypothesis, this is what I'm collecting, all the outcomes, this is how I'll analyze it, that kind of limits the number of decisions that can be made later and limits the selective reporting later. So that's one way. Another thing that a lot of people are working on is trying to increase transparency. So... Um, encouraging or requiring that researchers share their data and code. And this isn't just, you know, this, this is an ecosystem thing. So it's it's like journals are starting to adopt policies, funders are. Um, hopefully norms are starting to change within a bunch of disciplines where researchers feel this is part of doing research is being transparent.
0: And to me, it seems like some of this is also just enabled by technological shifts. You know, in the past, if you had a massive data set, and you're publishing a paper in a journal, you're publishing a paper in print and you can't necessarily include all of that data. But nowadays, as we're starting to have more platforms where people can share data and more technical tools that make it easier to share data, there's less and less barriers to doing that, to really revealing not only the data that you used, but the code you used to analyze that data and really making that transparent so that other people can take a look. Um, One of the things I really liked about your intro article was you brought up this metaphor of the front stage and the backstage and how really when you read an academic paper, you're just seeing kind of the front stage performance that someone has put together about the story about what they found. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're not necessarily seeing everything behind the scenes, all the messy data cleaning and analysis and all the decisions that went into that eventual paper Um, And now with new technologies and some of the platforms that people are building, some of the data repositories and other platforms people are building to share data, it's it's more possible for people to show that backstage and let other researchers examine that and weigh in on those decisions and maybe use the data in different ways and see what they come up with.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really agree with that. I think it's interesting. I found a paper... In uh, doing research on these topics going back to 1902 in which a researcher had said that he thought everyone that publishes should share their data and calculations along with their results. Um, but 1902. Said, 1902, it's like that would have had to be on paper and it could be. I mean, data sharing goes way back to um, Isaac Newton and asking for you know fellow astronomers to share their star data. So it's... Um, it's interesting. It's, it's of course, the rise of the internet has really helped data sharing and the rise of repositories. And so I think you're right. This, this infrastructure is now enabling much easier data sharing. And so we can have this movement towards transparency much more easily. Yeah.
0: So we're getting into a little bit now talking about some of the solutions or ways to make research more reliable. You know, I think when we started this series, what we had in mind was that a lot was being written about this reproducibility crisis and the causes of of the crisis, but what we really wanted to think about was how to fix it. I really just wanted to talk with you a little bit about what you found exciting um, in terms of the solutions people are coming up with, the innovations people are trying, and just kind of talk a little bit about what we learned because I thought there were so many interesting approaches people were trying to really make science stronger, make it more reliable.
1: I think some of the key themes from that we um, sort of were trying to gathering and putting the series together were uh, that there's many parts of the ecosystem, uh, the research ecosystem that have to be involved and that are getting involved. So uh, it's not just, you know, the onus is on researchers to change, it's also that. Uh, There should be training for researchers, even as early as undergrad or or grad school stage, in how to manage data and how to make their research reproducible. There's also journals and what they're doing as far as helping with and even checking on reproducibility. So, um, we had the American Journal of Political Science um, working with Odom Institute and a qualitative data repository to Basically check that the data and code can produce articles um, reproduce them prior to publication so that that's very i think that was great to feature because it's also pretty novel in the world of journals. there aren't so many journals that are doing that, certainly that's one of the only ones in political science I've heard of doing that so um but then also uh I you know we talked a lot about incentives, and that's huge. I think whenever you talk about changing behavior and whenever you bring up you know. People should change. It's like, well, what is the reward for changing or what is the incentive and how would this interface with their responsibilities now? So we had an article from some researchers at the University Medical Center Utrecht uh, who are doing something really exciting, which is looking at how they can change the tenure review process and promotion process to reward researchers for things beyond just the usual uh, how many publications do you have and which journals. Um, you know, so they're starting to reward people for sharing data and other things like that. And that's one of the big questions. How can we start to reward researchers for things beyond just publishing? Um, and so I think, yeah, I think the theme coming back to that is that in order to really improve the reliability of research through increased transparency and other things, how we have to get all all of these stakeholders involved, It can't just be one party that said you have to been told you have to change.
0: Absolutely. I think that was one of the biggest things that stuck out to me is, you know, people are increasingly recognizing that there's some problems here and they've kind of identified some of the roots of those problems, things like publication bias that you mentioned, but just asking individual researchers to change their norms is important, but that's not enough, you know? And so I think what two of the things that we really focused on in this series were, how do you give researchers the tools to do that? So training, data repositories, guidelines for sharing data, and then also how do you give them the incentives, as you mentioned? I think that a lot of times people who want to be more transparent in their research or make it more reproducible, not only are they not rewarded for that or not necessarily encouraged to do that by the current system, but they might be actively discouraged to do that. So if you're spending time to go out and try and replicate someone else's work to verify it, or you're spending time taking your data and making it really available and clean and getting all the uh, notations in there to make sure some other researcher can use that, that's not necessarily what you get rewarded for in the current academic system. A lot of times what you get rewarded for is a big splashy paper in a big journal or taking a data set and turning that into eight papers they can publish in, in journals and not focusing as much on broader questions around how their work is reproducible, transparent, and also just contributing more generally to strengthening science.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So Stephanie, having done this series and also all the work that you've done on reproducibility issues, I'm curious where you think the field is going to be in 20 years? You know, how is it, say I'm a researcher, how is the process of doing research and publishing and sharing my research going to look different, hopefully in 20 years compared to how it looks now?
1: That's a great question. So it's a little bit hard to say, obviously, um, 20 years, you know, a lot could happen, but I think there was there's going to be a lot more Um, at least on the side of quantitative research, how to integrate data and code management with sharing the results. So one interesting initiative um, I've seen recently is organizations that are starting to make it so that when you share the results, it's very easy to kind of flip them around. You have the summary results and you can see the underlying data and code that generated those results. So instead of having, you know, the, the, published results here and what led to those results over, over another place, you could see at least part of the process of underlying the article really easily. So there's a group called Code Ocean that is working on that. So that's one thing. So you're saying within,
0: within a, a paper, if we would even use that word anymore, within a paper itself, you'd be able to kind of dig in a little bit and see where the Findings came
1: from. That's right. And it's complicated. I, I don't know that I could say that that can go all the way back to the original data collection and all, all of the transformation, but ideally it would. So it sounds like I'm talking about something technical, I realize, but really I'm just talking about how much can we dig into the evidence um, underlying what these summary results that are what people will put into their articles, and how much can we dig in and see here's how they got there, right? So that would be true transparency is that there's kind of a seamless process for. For seeing the generation of the results from the underlying data and code. Hopefully in 20 years, there'll be a culture where researchers are really rewarded in ways that make sense for all of the kinds of work that they do, not just the very end product of their research, which is the article. So that if they are very transparent and allow others to check their work and really dig into all of the assumptions they've made and the analysis they did to get to their endpoint. And also, if they share their data so that others can use that data, that this will be something that's factored into the decisions about their promotion and their tenure. I think another area that I really hope changes over over the next 20 years, and I think a lot of people are working on this, is making it so that it's not a threat to have your work either reanalyzed so that others are checking the results or reproduced in the sense that others want to go out and try to see if they can get the same results. So there's been a lot of discussion in psychology about the reproducibility project where hundreds of psychologists around the world tried to reproduce about 100 um, well-known results in psychology and had a lot of trouble. Only about half could be reproduced. And then on the other hand, in cancer biology, there's an attempt to redo lab studies. Um, and that's also, to some extent, been struggling to reproduce results. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about kind of what what attitudes um, researchers take towards this kind of activity. I mean, there's, there's been some amount of feeling that, oh, if someone's check, trying to check your work, and, and either way, the reanalysis or trying to reproduce it, that it's some kind of attack. And um, I think that that's changing, uh, and I and I think that you know, knowing that Center for Open Science and um, Science Exchange are two groups that are working on this. That's not at all their aim, and other, others who are getting involved in reproducing. They're really trying to figure out what can we trust. And I don't think this is an attack, um, but that's been one of the issues here, which is that there's a feeling of I don't know individual individualism that every researcher is out standing by their own results and somehow trying to defend them. But I hope that in 20 years that there is a movement towards more of a sense of collaboration. Like we are trying to get to the bottom of what we can trust. And uh, we all want to become more confident in these results. A lot of the time, going back to the beginning, research is essential for deciding how to spend um, millions and millions of dollars in trying to help other people. Uh, One thing I've been working on also is... Advocating for clinical trial transparency, because uh, as it turns out, a large number of medical trials also don't share their results or don't share them for many years, and so there it's especially it especially hits hard thinking that we're doctors are making decisions about how to treat their patients and they don't have full information about the effectiveness of some of these drugs and so Yeah, I think looking forward, I really hope that all of this activity and all of these meta-researchers and more and more researchers getting involved in improving research that will end up with more transparent, reliable, and collaborative scientific work. Yeah, I
0: hope so too. I mean, I think the issue you just pointed to of thinking of science as a collaborative endeavor, which it really is and always has been, you know, people discover things, they maybe misinterpret them, they make mistakes, other people build on their work, they refine it, they discover new things. It really is this collaborative process. And I think that was one of the big takeaways from the series as well, that it needs to be a collaborative effort to fix the reproducibility crisis, you know, the entire ecosystem needs to change. That's one of the biggest things I leave our listeners with is that this isn't about bad actors or intentional misbehavior. It's about some fundamental improvements we can make to research as a whole by giving people the tools and the incentives to change how they do their research. Ultimately, I think we can make science stronger. And after working on this series and seeing some of the really innovative ways the contributors who we worked with are trying to address these issues, you know, I think it will take some time to get there, but I'm hopeful we can make science better. And more reliable yep I hope so too well thank you Stephanie so much for your work on this series and also for talking with us today about these issues
1: yeah thank you it's been a pleasure to work with you on this